Good evening, ghouls and ghoulettes, and welcome to Killer Horror Critic, the podcast worth dying for. Hosted by the Killer Horror Critic himself, this is the show where guests from all over the horror spectrum join to talk about some of their favorite horror films. So get snugged under the covers, grab a cuddly puppy, and prepare for tonight's blood-curdling episode of Killer Horror Critic. Good evening, horror fans, and welcome to another episode of Killer Horror Critic. I'm your host, Matt. And I'm Chris. And this is the podcast where my wife and I discuss horror films like a couple of drunks at the bar, trying to figure out what the hell they mean. So (laughs) maybe you don't always learn anything, but hopefully you have a good time listening. So today we are continuing our theme of the long-haired ghosts of J-horror, or really just the ghosts of J-horror. They just, a lot of them happen to be long-haired, but... (laughs) Uh, but we are continuing talking about the ghosts of J-horror films with the 2004 flick One Missed Call. So this is the original, not the American remake, <laughs> just to be clear on that. Uh, this was directed by Takashi Miike, who a lot of you probably know from the film Audition. Uh, the dude has over 100 credits to his name. He works quite a bit. <laughs> it's insane. Uh, another one from his that I would highly, highly recommend is the Masters of Horror episode called Imprint. Uh, which I believe is from the first season, but that one is through and through a Miki film where if you like to audition, it's <laughs> it's it's kind of like that again, you know, like some really uncomfortable torture stuff. But mm. there's but there's also a really just fascinating storyline going on in that film, so I do highly recommend it. Probably one of my favorite Masters of Horror episodes, but. Anyway, uh, the film was written by Minako Daira, I think is how you say that, uh, based on a novel by Yusuhi Akimoto. And so before we get into spoilers, we have our usual spoiler-free stuff. So uh, as far as releases go this week, there's actually quite a bit that's coming out. So I'm just going to touch on a few things here. But the film Jacob's Wife will be coming to VOD on the the 16th. This is... One that stars uh, Larry Fissenden and Barbara Crampton, who a lot of you know from Reanimator and her, and From Beyond and her, you know, more recent stints and like Your Next and a bunch of other films. She's had a really great rise actually in the last decade. But but I I did catch this one during the South by Southwest Film Festival. It's awesome. It, it's kind of like a callback to more sort of traditional vampire movies. Well, at the same time, kind of tackling, like, toxic relationships and whatnot. It's very interesting. It's very fun. Uh, more than anything, it's a fun, gory film. Like, I don't... <laughs> She's amazing in it. Barbara Crampton's amazing in it. Uh, the director, Travis Stevens, clearly has a lot of inspirations from some older vampire flicks from the 70s and 80s. So, definitely recommend that one. It's just a fun, bloody good time. Uh, and then last... And you can check out our review on that at KilloHorrorCritic.com from our writer, Amy Luahava, who you can follow on Twitter at Amy Lou Ahava, so that's A-M-Y-L-O-U-A-H-A-V-A. Uh, and then lastly is a film called In the Earth, which is coming to theaters on the 16th as well. And this is one that uh, honestly kind of blew me away during Sundance is when I caught it. And it's basically about, it, it's kind of, it sort of takes place in like a COVID world, but COVID's not really part of the plot. It's just sort of mentioned kind of offhandedly in the beginning. But it's basically like society is kind of starting to recover a little bit. And anyway, it follows this character who is going out to the woods with uh, with someone guiding them to search for a scientist. And can't really say much more than that because it, <laughs> it's really easy to get into spoilers with this film. But I will just say that it's a very like folky, eco-horror type movie that that's very trippy and deals a lot with like the horror of the earth and stuff like that. So it's a, it's very much a, a, a what I'm calling a, a 2020s film because between Sundance and especially South by Southwest, I've noticed a huge just kind of increase in eco horror films. <laughs> you know, it's almost like we're worried about global warming <laughs> or something. <laughs> it's almost like it's relevant. Yeah. Uh, but so in the earth is very much in that category and it's just a, a really solid film. I, I don't know that it's going to be for everybody. It is very strange. You know, it's definitely, <laughs> it, it's not your traditional movie. Right. 
But but if you're into kind of these trippier sort of eco folky horror type movies, I do definitely recommend this one. But yeah, so that's just a few releases coming out this week. We also have The Last Drive-In season three premiere on Shutter. Uh, Fangoria Chainsaw Awards are on the 18th. You know, so there's so there's a lot to look forward to this week. Um, and that will also be on Shutter. But as far as the film One Miss Call, so we always like to do a Pull on Twitter on our account at Killer Critics, just kind of getting your thoughts and feelings on the film and what you think of it. So between love it, it's fine, don't like it, and never seen it, where do you think the audience falls on one missed call? I mean, love it, because this is an awesome J-horror film. Well, you would be wrong. Damn it! <laughs> <laughs> uh, so love it got 20%, it's fine got 40%, don't like it got... 6.7% and never seen it got 33.3%. What? So what this poll tells me is that I am starting to become the old person in <laughs> in the horror community because I look at so so usually I'm kind of understanding with polls and with this one I'm a little bit understanding in the sense that like Actually, no. I'm, I'm no, scratching that. I'm not. I'm not. I, I, don't, I don't understand the. I don't understand the results of this poll at all. I, I'm starting to feel like the old person in the horror community because, you know, so so I I grew up during the kind of and Chris did too. You know, we both grew up during the big like J horror craze in mm -hmm. the states, uh, which pretty much started with Renu. You know, that was yeah. the one that that really sparked an interest in J horror. I mean. You know, Japan had been making great horror films forever, but uh, but for whatever reason, Renu was the one that just really stood out and kind of struck a chord in the States here and, and sort of kicked off that whole obsession with J-horror where we just started remaking, like, every fucking <laughs> J-horror movie there was, you know, whether it was The Ring, The Grudge, One Miss Call, Dark Water, like, all these movies that we're talking about this month, uh, except for Tomio. Tomio was the only one that ever got remade, which it really should have been, I guess, because it's guess. a great film. I'm just saying, like, if they were going to tackle all these J-horror movies, why not also I, do Tomie? But <laughs> Because I feel like if even American filmmakers understand that they cannot do Junji Ito right. Like, I feel like if they tried to remake any of his stuff, it just would go horribly wrong. <laughs> See, I disagree. Like, I talked about on the episode, I think Tomie is actually the most easily accessible storyline. You know, like, the film itself is, is confusing, but America has done tons of <laughs> horror movies that are just like Tomie. So... <laughs> Um, but anyway, so all of that being said, I feel like I'm losing myself here. Um, you know, I, we came up during this J-horror era. So to me, One Missed Call was like one of the movies that you sought out at the time. Because yeah. it was, you know, it's from Takashi Miike, who was a big horror director at the time, mm -hmm. especially with Audition. Like Audition really caught the attention of people in the States, right? And so so One Missed Call, I I've always felt like was one of the kind of big three with the J-horror films, yeah. you know, between, between Renu, Juwan, and then One Missed Call. And so to get a poll where half of you haven't seen it and the other half is just like, it's fine, you know? I, I'm, a, I'm a little confused by that, I'm going to be honest. I feel like for me, too, with One Missed Call, like, out of our big three of Ring, Grudge, and One Missed Call, I feel like One Missed Call is the most accessible as well. Like, I feel like it's the most straightforward with, with storytelling. And look, my my horror knowledge and the movies I've seen is a weird scattershot. So it's always mind-boggling to me when I've seen a film that the rest of our poll audience has it. Because I'm like, what? I've, I've seen so little. Yeah, but you were also obsessed with J-horror for a while. That You That's started true. your horror love I, a little bit with J-horror. My, my friend got me on that. Like, I before my friend introduced me to J-horror, yeah, everything I was watching was all random. Like, I'd seen I'd seen the big four. Um, and then she's the one who started me off with Audition and then Ichi the Killer. And then... No better way to go. I, there's a lot better ways to go. So, so, yeah, so that's the results on that. Definitely a little thrown off there. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but so we always like to take your comments as well. And we didn't have many for one missed call, apparently, since none of you have seen it. So <laughs> uh, so we did get one comment from at BeerNut1. This is Seth, big supporter of ours. What's up, Seth? And uh, he just says, good movie, was fun, and had some great suspense sequences. And the first movie I remember watching where technology was possessed and stalking victims. Yeah, I feel like this movie did a good usage of technology. We've talked about this in, in past in past podcasts where using technology in a modern setting can be really difficult. But one missed call, I feel like you just 
utilizes the cell phones great. Um, I think it's a really fun one. Great kills, good suspense. Yeah, no, I really agree with Seth here. You know, I to me, this is a great film, and and there are a lot of really great eerie moments in this movie. There, there's one that this is not a spoiler. That's honestly just one of my favorites, and it's such a small moment too. But it has our main character Yumi, played by Ko Shibisaki, and uh, and this kind of detective that she short of partners with uh, Hiroshi, played by Shinichi Tsutsumi. I believe is how you say it, <laughs> but they're they're investigating this uh, apartment and and as they're kind of going through things, you know, there's this like cupboard above her that is open or it opens itself and then like a hand and a face slowly kind of start to emerge, kind of like Michael Myers in the original Halloween when he comes into the hallway behind Jamie yeah. Lee Curtis, and that starts to happen and then. You know, she turns, sees it, freaks out, and it disappears before uh, old Hiroshi can see it, you know? And it's just, like, it's just such a well-executed moment that I feel like, you know, Miki really brings this this great, like, heightened sense of fear and atmosphere to this movie that, yeah. that a lesser director might not have. And, and yeah, so, no, I, I'm totally with Seth there. And it it is one of the... It is one of the earlier films to focus on the cell phone and the internet uh, as as like kind of a technology driven thing coming after victims. You know, it, it it wasn't exactly a new idea. I mean, the the phone thing kind of was, but you know, we we'd seen technology horror for a bit in terms of like you know, Shocker from Wes Craven's All About a Killer that is traveling through electricity and your TV mm. and stuff like that. I, I believe there's another film called Ghost in the Machine that has a ghost that's like possessing objects around the house, you know? So that concept wasn't exactly entirely new, but Seth is right that this is one of the earlier kind of phone ones where, you know, we, we were really starting to start discussing the phone itself and, yeah. and what that meant for society, right? So <laughs> which we're going to get a bit into here in a second, but one last thing we'd like to do before we get into spoilers is, uh, Talk about the tagline versus the movie. Get our thoughts on the tagline of the film overall. So one of the taglines I found for one missed call was, Death cannot be put on hold. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think of the tagline? What do you think of one missed call overall? I mean, I guess it's right. You can't really put death on hold. It comes for us all. No, it's it's a fine tagline, I guess. For me with One Missed Call, this is definitely one of my favorite Takeshi Miike horror films. I will not lie, aud Audition and Ichi the Killer are a little intense for me, so I can't watch them with any regularity. But One Missed Call, I love watching. I actually love the entire trilogy. I think it's really fun. Personally, I do like a lot of Takeshi Miike's action films, too, because he did Tsukiyaki Des Sukiyaki Western Diango, which I love. But for me with One Missed Call, what I really enjoy with it is, you know, with haunting films, especially with Western ones, we're used to like jump scares and stuff like that. And what I think they do so well in One Missed Call is this idea of knowing something is coming from you and you can't run from it. Mm. Like you can't escape it or anything like that. That's why I'm with you. I like that scare that we get in the apartment. And Takeshi Miike does that so well in this film of letting you know what's coming and then you can't help but keep watching and being horrified by it. Mm. And that's, for me, what I think is really great about this film. All right. Well, first of all, I'm going to defend the tagline. I don't know why you're <laughs> acting like it's so basic uh, because because I, I actually think that it speaks to the theme of the movie very well, which mm. is that we can't get too much into it here because I don't want to spoil anything, but, uh, but we are going to talk later about this theme. But there is a heavy theme in the movie about the fact that death is inescapable, mm -hmm. you know, and, and that's kind of something that is going on from the very beginning of this film to the very end is this idea that you just cannot escape it. You know, one, one missed call in a way, I mean, this is a bad comparison, but in a way it's like the J horror final destination of the time, Yeah, you know, cause final destination is a similar movie of like, just no matter what you do, you cannot escape your fate. Mm -hmm. uh, and one missed call is kind of one of those, you know, that it's an underlying theme. It's not the main one, but it's there. But as a film overall, you know, what you just said is why why I like this movie in particular a lot and why I love J-Horror is, first of all, in J-Horror, you know, at this time especially, th there wasn't a focus on jump scares per se. It, it was more about atmosphere, you know. It was, yeah. this under it was this understanding that the fear comes from the atmosphere and not from the scare in the moment. Mm -hmm. you, you're more scared by the scare in the moment, like the cupboard thing, because the movie is consistently 
pulling at your nerves and <laughs> and making you <laughs> uncomfortable, right? And, and that was something that a lot of the American remakes kind of didn't Missed. understand as well as, you know, they were kind of more about the scares and less about the atmosphere. And, and look, that's fine. You know, every, everybody has what they prefer. I prefer more atmosphere over jump scares. I think there's more substance there. Others prefer jump scares. That's totally okay. But for me, that's why I've always really liked J-Horror. And then as far as One Miss Call with Takashi Miike's work, I do agree that I think that One Miss Call is kind of one of his more accessible movies. You know, mm-hmm. there's not... there. There's some really uncomfortable moments in the movie, but it, nothing on the level of, like, audition or yeah. imprint or, or something else, you know? And... But, but but what I like about One Miss Call compared to Juwan or Renu is that, you know, maybe you disagree with me, but I've always sort of viewed One Miss Call as kind of being like like a campy B-movie that's elevated to a different level by Takashi Miike's direction. Yeah. You know, like it feels like, and when I say that, that's not an insult to the plot of the movie or anything. It's just that the the way the script plays out, One Miss Call is kind of like your it's it it's it's the most it reminds me the most of like a more traditional type horror movie where you know it's not super complex like juan yeah. it's not super weird like renu you know it's not it's not that type of j horror it feels the most accessible it feels the most like uh like kind of a standard horror movie and there yeah. is a bit of camp to it you know like this whole concept of uh one of the girls who finds out that she's next is like ends up on a tv show where they're trying to like exploit the fact that she's possessed and they have like i mean they have like a fucking exorcist come out you know to like exercise her on national tv like there are moments like that in the movie that are just so campy Mm -hmm. but because takashi Miike is such a confident great director you know it never really comes off that way necessarily it feels scary despite the camp (laughs) i definitely agree with that i think that's why yeah that is why for me one missed call is one of my favorites it's my analogy in my head has always been that one missed call has been kind of the slasher of the the top j horror and we know how we feel about slashers it's not because it's a haunting and all of that kind of other stuff. But yeah, your point, it's... In terms of simplicity, sure, we can yep. say that. Um, but uh, all right, so so we gotta, we're going to take a break and we're going to come back and spoil One Missed Call for you. So before we do that, uh, the film is streaming on Shudder and I think maybe Prime. So definitely check it out there beforehand if you've never seen it. Otherwise, we will see you in a second to spoil One Missed Call. If you've been enjoying Killer Horror Critic... Please make sure to head to iTunes and leave a review and rating, as this helps the show get noticed by others and would be a huge favor to me. Also make sure to check out my Patreon, where you can receive access to exclusive content, such as bonus questions for each episode, extra episodes, and more. To find out details, visit www.patreon.com slash killerhorrorcritic. Thank you so much for your support, and I hope you enjoy tonight's episode. All right, and welcome back to our discussion here on the 2004 film One Missed Call from director Takashi Miike. So, as we always like to do, you know, there's uh, kind of a plethora of characters in this movie, such as Yumi, who we already mentioned, played by Ko Shibasaki, Hiroshi, played by Shinichi Tsutsumi, Yumi's friend Natsumi, played by Kazui Fukushi. I'm so terrible at saying names. Um, <laughs> who who caught your eye in one missed call? Who do you want to talk about? Uh, I want to talk about... And we are about to spoil this yep. movie again, by the way. So if you have not seen it, I believe it's streaming on Shudder. Check it out there. Otherwise, be prepared for spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for me, I want to talk about uh, Yamashita, the detective. Like, our, our main dude character in this. And it's because, look, we get a character like him pretty regularly, I feel like, in horror. I feel like we see it a little bit more regularly in J-horror, which is this dude who gets paired up with our inquisitive female character, right? And for me, I personally love him because the movie sets him up in the beginning is that he is this very serious detective his sister was killed he's trying to get to the bottom of this he keeps kind of showing up he shows up at the at the funeral of yoko um who's the girl who got killed on the train shows up at the funeral there and he says nothing he's just a dark shadow walking around and he just seems like he's going to be this grim dark person 
and then you get to know him later on and and especially as he gets attached to to yumi he is just an awkward soft boy and i love him okay <laughs> like it's it's kind of this nice thing that we get i don't know if they're supposed to be like romantically interested in each other i didn't get that vibe i don't know if you did i mean there i mean yes i mean <laughs> come on you've got you've got a young male detective hanging out with this woman the whole time like there's definitely something there especially when you look at the ending <laughs> The ending confuses me, <laughs> but like it's it's a thing that I really like seeing with him is that he gets later on in the movie he gets flustered easily like when when Yumi says she's she's gonna go and check out the hospital like he's at the orphanage at that point and he stumbles and trips over everything and and screams at a small child which <laughs> is why I'm so confused by her comments of he's such a soft sweet boy by the end he does yell at a small <laughs> just child just yelling at children and women and he, punching poles and ripping phones in half <laughs> look he has a he's lot he's such a sweet soft person person <laughs> look i yes he also is potentially filled with rage maybe um i think he's definitely <laughs> filled with rage <laughs> he, I, he he strikes me look he strikes me as you know okay you know it, it, the, films in general like I'm, I'm not just gonna put it down the j-horror but like films in general the and especially when it comes to male detectives they are angry people. Yes. You know, I, there, there's really, there's very rarely such thing as soft, sweet male detective. Like it just almost doesn't exist a uh, lot of times in movies. And, and but he gonna, gets fired. He's not really a detective anymore. Well, he quits. Actually, <laughs> he doesn't get fired. He quits. But uh, the most casual quitting I've ever seen, by right? the way. Um, but but no, like. I don't know. I, I I guess I'm not quite with you with the he's soft and sweet thing because I'm sorry. I I can't I can't support a man screaming at a small child who is at this hospital because of abuse, <laughs> and he's screaming in her face. Tell me what you know. You know he he's like he's like Batman like beating up the Joker in that interrogation scene. Like where is she? You know, and that's. That's him with a uh, like six year old girls. <laughs> I guess for me, okay, not soft, sweet boy. He's also there... he rips Yumi's phone in half because a ghost gets... is gonna kill her. No, but my, but 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 <laughs> she she gets this voicemail and he just he's sitting there with the phone and he just rips it in half. That's her phone. He didn't ask her if he can do that. <laughs> And then he throws it in the fish tank and pollutes the fish tank. <laughs> That's true. He did kill the fish. Yeah. Okay. I guess I should I should rephrase. I have a soft spot for soft chaos monsters, and he is a soft chaos monster. I have a soft spot for men who yell at small children. <laughs> well, look, he also tried to murder a ghost with an axe, and I can't not love a man who's like, you know what, ghost? Fuck you, I'm gonna hit you with an axe. Like, dumb dumb, that's not gonna work. There's probably a lot of men that would hit a ghost with an axe that are I not know. very good people. <laughs> that's true. I think for me where I get like the the good side of him and why like I do find him in endearing and not like your typical detective is the fact that like we do have more emotional moments with him. Like when he realizes and has to come to terms with the fact that Yumi had been abused as a child and how that still affects her. Like I feel like the actor did a really good job in that moment to kind of show the anger and frustration that's going to happen when something happened to someone you cared about and you can't do anything about it. Um, also, he tries to save a murdery child at the end. Like, there's that weird dream sequence where he goes and gives Mimiko, like, her asthma medicine so maybe she doesn't die. I don't know. He's a weird chaos dude. I don't think he's shitty. And so I like him. Okay. I mean, I've never... <laughs> I never said he was shitty. I'm just, I'm just combating your sweet, innocent boy okay, <laughs> approach I... to it. But who I want to talk about just briefly is Mamiko and her sister, and, and and I want to focus on both of them because I just, I find the setting of their room very interesting. You know, so like, so like if you look at Mamiko and her sister's room, which I, I'm struggling to remember her sister's name is the fact that so when you look at this room of these two kids you know and, and for those of you who are for some reason listening who 
have not seen the film yet, Mamiko ends up being our killer, our our ghost that is stalking Yumi and and all of her friends. And you know, and she's this little girl who we find out was abusing her sister and her mother just let her die from an asthma attack, right? Mm. Really traumatic, dark <laughs> stuff, which is where Miki kind of comes in with his typical sort of movie, right? Yep. But when you look around this room, what I find interesting is that there are there are lots of really nice childish drawings of like, you know, smiling sunflowers and clouds mm-hmm. and, you know, like families holding hands and happy together. And then there's one drawing that just really stands out to me, and it and it's made to be right in our face, like it's center frame on the wall, and it's this drawing of this little fish that's about to be eaten by a big red angry fish, <laughs> and and there to me that that's really interesting because I think that you can kind of look at it as either being drawn by Mamiko or her sister. Mm-hmm. You know, because in one sense, you can look at it as being drawn by Mamiko because, well, obviously she's the mean kind of evil one, right? So yeah. it makes sense that she's probably drawing the more fucked up, <laughs> <laughs> the more fucked up kids drawing of, of the ones that are in the room, right? Mm-hmm. But you can also look at it as potentially being drawn by the smaller girl because, you know, a lot of these drawings seem to belong to her. She is the... She's a smaller child. A lot of these drawings are very similar to each other, right? Uh-huh. And you can almost sort of imagine that she is working out her own trauma by drawing this picture of this mean fish eating the littler fish and is working out the trauma of, like, that big red mean fish is her sister. Yeah. And to get even deeper with that <laughs> and why, again, why I just always say I fucking love movies so much, especially when you're dealing with, like, intelligent directors and crew members who know how to fit as much as they can into every frame. Mm-hmm. It's to me, it's not a coincidence that the fish is red because all throughout the film, all of our victims are having this red candy put in their mouth, yeah. which turns out to be a candy that Mamiko would give her sister whenever she abused her, you know, she'd mm-hmm. abuse her and then give her this candy. Mm-hmm. And so, so I, so it's almost like I, I can imagine that the sister is drawing this and working things out and and you know red happens to be a color that she associates with her sister because of this candy right yeah and and then just another thing with that is like you can this film's all about this concept of like abuse creates more abuse right Mm -hmm. and and trauma creates trauma and essentially dealing with this fact that or dealing with this idea that you know people who suffer through these things tend to go on to whether consciously or subconsciously treat others similarly right Mm -hmm. i mean you see you see it even just in like the business world or or the film (laughs) world where it's like you know you and this is obviously a different kind of abuse but it's like you have you know countless people who you know who come up in the film world being treated like shit as pas or assistants and then they go on to do the same thing to their people and, and their reasoning is always like well that's how i came up you know and so anyway there's another scene that stands out to me with the sister where, where you know, Hiroshi's over there yelling in her face and, <laughs> and you know, just scarring her further. Um, <laughs> and, and she's playing with this bear that happens to have this tone inside of it when you squeeze it that is the main ringtone that's stalking everybody, right? Yeah. And it, it really stands out to me how the nurse comes up to her in that moment and... She's like playing doctor on the bear or something. And she says something like, you know, oh, is, is the bear sick again or something like that? Yep. And it is really striking to think that here's this little girl who's been abused and you can almost start to sort of see signs of potentially her beginning to have those characteristics that maybe her sister or her abuser had where... You know, she's constantly pretending like this bear is sick, yeah, so that she needs to take care of it. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> and that's... it's and it's literally like the same thing that we're dealing with all throughout the movie. This concept of abusers abusing people to keep them closer to them. <laughs> yeah, well, not only that, but it's the exact thing that Mimiko was doing to her. Is yeah. she was abusing her with a purpose? It wasn't ever to just hurt her sister. It was to hurt her sister and then take her to the hospital. 
Um, and so that's why for me that that one line in that scene is is really telling that I want to say that the girl's name is Nanako. Mm. That Nanako seems to be doing the same things to her bear that Mimiko was doing to her. Um, and it just all sadly travels down the line. And Nanako seems she only has one line in the entire movie. And that's her justification for why she allowed her sister to do this to her. Mm-hmm. And that was, but she always gave me candy. And that is the most fucked up thing <laughs> that like hurts my heart so much. Yeah, and not not to sound bad or anything, but like <laughs> I can almost picture that being a response from you though, just since you're so candy obsessed. It's like, <laughs> but at least I got candy out of it. Like I lost a leg, but <laughs> I got a s'mores treat. So. Okay, hey, s'mores are fucking delicious. They're not fucking worth losing a leg over. You you can use your leg to walk to the store to get more s'mores. That's true. All right. So anyway, so so yeah, so so that character just really struck me as like there's a lot of little hints at things going on with her that are not directly addressed, but are there. Like there, you know the. There is this theme of everything being passed on. You can definitely see that happening in the little girl in that we have every reason to believe that she's potentially going to go on and treat people a similar way in the future, right? Which is really sad and depressing. But So speaking of more sad and depressing, (laughs) because, as you know, One Miss Call is interesting because as fun as the movie is, there's so much underneath it that's just unbelievably dark so uh so what are your thoughts on you know the focus of the horror of the phone and like how the curse works in this movie look i'm just gonna go and say it and this might be controversial but one missed call is a more effective use of technology for killing people than sadako's videotape like that I'm not going to deny that. It's way easier to (laughs) spread a curse through a phone than it is to have people pick up a random videotape to watch. (laughs) Um, That, for me, is the brilliance of this curse, is how easily it gets passed along. Um, And I think that's really the... I don't know if I'm going to say necessarily the dark side of technology, but I feel like with the use of the phone and the fact that it just goes through your contact list and chooses someone sensibly at random kind of shows how connected we are and how close we are to tragedy itself. Because look, I, I want to say that the detective sister is one of our first victims of the curse. And she is connected to Yumi through this weird line of phone call, you know, contact lines. Like, we're that close and that related to other tragedies. That, for me, is the brilliance of, like, using the phone and how it does the curse itself is just showing how kind of horribly connected we all are to everything and then how quickly we strive to break those connections like for me one of the horrifying kind of sad scenes in there is um when Natsumi when she's cursed when she's waiting out her her time and she gets confronted by all the girls in her school who all immediately like they want to immediately distance themselves for her from her they immediately want to just like take take their numbers out of her phone and put so much distance in between themselves and her so that they won't risk getting this, which I think Mm. is really kind of depressing. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's definitely one of the things that we're talking about here with one missed call is this idea that, you know, we are all now interconnected, Mm -hmm. you know, we always were, but, but I think, I think part of the commentary going on here with one missed call is this idea that, you know, Phones and technology have have worked their way into more of a communal experience. Now, granted, everyone listening, keep in mind we're 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 looking at this to a reference point of you know the early two thousands. Okay, like mm-hmm. obviously by twenty twenty one, I mean you can't go through through a single day without being attached to like fucking technology, yeah. whether it's phones or social media or whatever. You know, back in the two thousands, that was still an early thing. So we're looking at it through that viewpoint, but. You know, one missed call to me is kind of a reaction to the idea that we were starting to become so interconnected. You know, there'd always been this sense of, like, you can escape, in a sense, uh, you know, the world around you. You know, like, you could, like, 
you know, you could go home and you don't have to answer your landline phone when it goes off, right? Like, yeah. you had no internet. You you know, you just went home, you watched TV, you read a book, you played a video game, you did whatever, right? Mm-hmm. But as soon as cell phones started kind of working their way into things, suddenly the cell phone became a huge part of life, you know? Like, I, like both Chris and I are from a, from kind of a weird intersection of generations where, like, we're old enough to remember a time without cell phones. Yep. But we're also old enough to have been there and be old enough to understand the transition in the cell phones, you know, because it both happened in our teen years, like our middle teen years, right? Mm -hmm. So we were old enough to kind of know a life without it, but then have to adjust to a life with it as it was happening, you know, as and and as we were young. And, And anyway, so, you know, so this to me is kind of a reaction to that is this concept that once cell phones came around, there, there's no longer any escape from reality. You know, you can't you can't just go home and not answer your landline and turn off the TV, right? Like yeah. now, now you've got a phone where people can call you and they know that it's always on you. You know, yeah. they know that you always have your cell phone, and <laughs> it's a new and, level if you have a one missed call. But basically, it's touching on this idea of like you know you cannot you cannot just say, well, I wasn't home. Or I didn't hear my phone go off or something like that. You know, it's or, or I was in the shower, you know, now it's like people expect you to answer your phone anytime <laughs> they call or text you. You have to be there. You have to be around to answer it. You know, there's no no escape from it. You can't just turn your phone off because then everyone's like, why didn't you answer your cell phone, you dick? <laughs> So it's really touching on that. And there's a, you know, the opening scene is actually really great. You have the one guy, Kenji, who, you know, has everyone like exchange their numbers, which I'm a little confused about because it kind of seems like they're all friends. I don't know why they don't have each other's numbers already. But. Oh, because I, I know the answer to that. It's actually um they're doing a group date type of thing. So it's something that they do over in Japan to kind of like meet new people. That's why the girl says like, oh, if I had a boyfriend, I wouldn't be here. So it's basically mm. like a mixer event. That's why they don't have each other's number. Gotcha. Okay. Weird stuff. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> any, anything communal and social is always weird to me. Um, but, but anyway, so, so, you know, he, he has them all exchange their numbers and it's like during dinner and, and dinner itself is this very communal event. So it's basically just showing how like the phone and technology has worked its way into our more, our, our more primal, like communal activities. Right. Mm-hmm. And so so I don't know. It, it's just like ultimately there ends up just being this implication that like not only can you not escape technology, but technology has also gotten us to the point where, you know, we're not really listening to each other all the time either. And that's another thing that kind of stands out to me with this dinner scene is it sort of feels like no one's actually listening to each other discuss the things that they've been through. And yeah. <laughs> so that's what I really like about that opening scene is it seems to encompass all of our themes that we get in this film. Because um, I want to say that it's Kenji who has the line where it's phobias come from what we can't forget. And I was kind of curious what your thoughts on how this film approaches the link between trauma and phobias. Yeah, I mean, it's basically like a running theme throughout the entire film is this idea of you know, like we've kind of already been talking about, like about how, you know, trauma is passed on, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or you know, trauma, I think, like all of the early scenes, you know, I mean, this is classic, like, screenwriting 101 or filmmaking 101, right? Is that all of the themes of the movie are, like, presented scene after scene after scene in the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you have the very first moment with, with Yumi struggling with, the gas burner and we learned about her phobia with peepholes right which comes into play later in the movie and then you've got uh they're in class and she's not paying attention and you know teacher's like what are we talking about and she's like you know stands up and says uh what is it uh, abuse creates more abuse or something like that yeah you know so i mean the movie's not very subtle about <laughs> <laughs> about the theme going on here uh, i have to admit that i had a moment with both of those early scenes you know there's that whole joke of like ah they said the title of the movie in the movie that's kind of what i felt about those opening scenes of like ah they said the themes of the movie in the movie right (laughs) no yeah for sure but but basically like i i guess the way that i kind of look at how this movie is going with this is this sort of idea of you know i think i think on another level the way the film's working and, and and using the concept of trauma creating more trauma and and so on is that you know i sort of feel like 
something else going on here with that is that I think we might have mentioned the death is inevitable kind of idea mm-hmm. uh, with one missed call. And it, I actually feel like from the moment the film starts, Yumi's already doomed. <laughs> yep. And, and you know, like before she gets the call, before any of her friends get the call, I feel like there's the sense that Yumi's already being haunted. And it's kind of like this idea of, you know, there there is no escape from the inevitable. And her being a person who is who, who has been abused and whatnot, she's almost like a magnet for the little girl Mimiko, you know, in the sense that, like, Mimiko is this abused child who, well, who, who did abuse, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's almost like she can sense that in Yumi as, like, the perfect person to kind of well, yeah. come into, right? <laughs> well, especially because, like, when we're in that opening scene um, and none of the group has gotten cursed yet, um, Yumi's the one who has the small arm that appears, like, on her side. Yeah, and as she's toying with the burner, too, she's hearing the sounds of the inhaler, you know, which we don't know what it is at the time, <laughs> but later we realize that's Namiko's sound, right? Yeah. So, so, yeah, so it just, it really feels like, you know, from the beginning, she's cursed, and, and you know, because of her trauma. Like, it, it's almost like it's opened her up to, you know, being more receptive to that, sort of thing in the world right yeah and and it's really interesting too like when you start to kind of go through again and look at little images here and there like you know i mentioned how the little girl's room has that that red fish eating the other fish right Mm -hmm. and and there's the symbol of the red candy that mamiko's putting in all our victims mouths and and when you look in yumi's room you know there's something that caught my eye which is this painting that is like a very withered and dead tree and on the tree is a single shiny red apple. <laughs> and so... I didn't notice any of the scenery in this film. <laughs> well, I, I imagine you just, like, sit in your head, like... No, like, I just I focus on the subtitles. <laughs> I don't know what... Well, okay. So, um, listen, Chris, you have to have every subtitle memorized the first time, and then you watch the movie. <laughs> uh, Fuck you. So, so no, but anyway, she has the, she has that painting, and, you know, again, it's another one of those things that feels very purposeful in this movie, like, why is it there, right? And, you know, to me, it's just, like, another symbol of, you know, potentially the way that Yumi feels on the inside is kind of, like, this sort of, like, withered tree, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that apple, to me, is just, like, another symbol of Mamiko kind of, like, haunting the background of the movie, so... <laughs> Uh, for me, I see it more as a commentary on how one person's trauma can leak out and affect an entire community. Right. You know, it's that whole idea that, like, if you have a bad day and you take it out on anybody else around you, it creates a ripple effect. And that was that was the main thing that I noticed with the use of trauma in this and trauma and phobias, because if we watch Yumi throughout this entire film, the actress does a really good job of having little nuances to her character that kind of show how she was affected by the trauma in her life. Mm. Like, it's little things. Like, when she hears noises that sound like nail clippers, like when she hears the camera flash in the on the opening scene, like, she has PTSD flashbacks. So it really shows how trauma not only, like, creates these phobias, but also really affects our everyday life in really little ways. Well, and you mentioned the communal thing, and going along with that opening scene, like, I I love this opening scene, actually, because as simple as this, like, it's so simple, you know, it's just people, it's just people having dinner Mm -hmm. and meeting each other, and then, like, a quick bathroom scene, right? Like, it's such a simple moment, but there's so much going on here. And, you know, speaking on the communal thing, again, it ties back to the the object that the whole movie's tied around, right? Which is the phone. Mm-hmm. And you have all these people that are sharing their phone numbers around the table, but they're also sharing their trauma and they're also sharing their lives, right? Mm-hmm. So, so the phone itself kind of becomes a symbol of like, you know, that sort of, shared humanity in a sense (laughs) yeah well i feel like i mean again the opening scene i feel like it also showcases how we downplay our own trauma to the people in our lives to kind of like out of shame or what have you because look they're talking about yumi's phobia about her being afraid of peepholes and they're kind of making fun of it well so this is the other thing with the movie that's really interesting right is that it you know, it, this, this is such a nihilistic horror film in so many ways. Like, I and I, I think it's a response to to 
kind of like the the rise of suicide and nihilism, you know, that was kind of occurring in the late 90s, early 2000s. And because it just that, that was just like a very rough period, just like this is going to be a rough period, right? <laughs> yep. or, or is already. And or, yeah, in a lot of senses, it feels like we've been in this like nihilistic stage for like 20 years. But <laughs> <laughs> but no, but that is something going on, too, is that it, it's it's also touching on like, you know, not just the idea of death as an inevitability, not just the idea of like shared trauma but also this concept that society ignores trauma and overlooks it and yeah you have it at the dinner table there with you know it i don't know that they're really i mean yeah they're poking fun a little bit they're definitely not taking it seriously right you know it's like it's like a fun story for them and you know what what really stands out to me is like the fact that the cops just seem completely incapable of understanding what's happening right (laughs) And and the reason being that, like, you know, they, they attribute it to suicide, the deaths that are happening. You know, one girl falls in front of a train, another guy falls down an elevator shaft. Like, they're, they're treating it like suicide, and yet somehow ignoring the fact that a fucking red candy is, like, popping out of these people's <laughs> mouths at every, at every crime scene, right? You know, it's like this very obvious symbol right? of the fact that these are connected, yet they completely ignore it. And it might be a stretch to say this, but, like, you know, that sort of reflects kind of how... We we observe death more than we understand it. We observe trauma more than we get it, right? So, so like, it, it, they're just kind of, like, taking the easy explanation at these crime scenes and, and leaving it at that. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's almost like, you know, they're, they're accepting that death happened. We don't want to know more about it. Let's move on, right? Mm-hmm. And that sort of feels like how trauma is always treated. Like, we... You know, we we either just don't pay any attention to it. We ignore all the signs with people, you know. And, yeah, and it just, like, society just keeps going on and not really taking anything seriously. Yeah. (laughs) You know, which kind of moves into, like, the whole (laughs) – my favorite sequence in the entire movie, (laughs) the whole whole TV show uh, sequence that happens with Natsumi, you know – it's like the perfect example of this concept of society just not giving a fuck. Yep. <laughs> and it, like it's <laughs> I mean basically yeah, you've got these TV show producers who just like harass her and find her on the street and are like you're the girl who got the call. Yep. Like somehow they know about the call. And you know, they take her to this show and they're basically just like exploiting her, right? You know, they're just putting her up in front of the camera and and you know, letting us all watch her pain <laughs> and like so <laughs> So like what what's what's your thoughts on like why this TV show is exploiting her that way and why we're doing this? <laughs> I mean, this feels like it was this was at the beginning of us really getting reality television and things like this and and I feel like this is a mirror reflecting how our culture, you know, just laps up tragedy stories. Yeah. Like we we don't give a shit about the people who are involved in them. We just love tragedy and feeling sad and then walking away because it's not our lives. Yeah, human beings are kind of sick in that way where it's <laughs> like if you look back through the 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 way we have entertainment all throughout history, mm-hmm. you know, you've always found things like the the gladiator reigns or <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like the gladiator reigns or like reality TV or or witch burnings, you know, right. like these were like public events and it's always it's always these real things, right? Like people for some reason love the suffering of real people. It's yeah. just it's such a and, and only if we can find enough way to be disconnected from it though so that we're like <laughs> so that we're like it's okay that this is happening. She was a witch. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay that I'm like excited about watching this person burn. <laughs> well, I mean, I feel like for me with this this is very much reality television we want to watch people crash and burn and watch that whole like event happen but be separated from it and i feel like that's really what we're seeing like with the people in the street like Mm. it's not like natsumi when they're showing her on a television they're not showing her in family homes they're showing her being broadcast they're showing her being broadcast to the public, like mm. in these giant spaces where people are watching this girl break down, have an awful day, and no, then no, get no. her head twisted off. No, no, no. Actually, I'm going to correct you there. They're not even paying attention. No. That's, that, that's the point of it, is that they're broadcasting it you know, all over the place, and we're getting these intercut shots of people just on the street going about their day. Yeah. And that, and that again, that ties back to this whole thing of like society just overlooking traumatized people and people dealing with the stuff because you know yeah here you have on the big screen being broadcast everywhere 
and all these people are just like, eh, whatever, what am I going to get at the grocery store right now? You know, like, they don't care. <laughs> no. Well, even worse is you have people like the director who want to take people's pain and tragedy and monetize it. Like, you have that scene. Ah, uh, the wonderful world of reality TV. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like, you see that scene where everything's starting to go south. It's getting fucky. The ringtones play in. The priest just got smacked by a ghostly bitch. As he should be. <laughs> right? And, like, the, the people working on the show want to go to commercial. They want to cut out. And the director is just like, no. Nope, we're staying on this. And he broadcast this poor girl getting her look, head twisted off. Look, let me just put it this way. You know, one of the reasons I got sick of working in reality TV, because that's, you know, what both Chris and I have done for so many years, is like, I won't I won't name the show because I don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> but, but one particular show, I can remember, you know, a, a big fight happening between people. And, like, not just like a casual argument you know but like a physical violent fight and instead of the producers you know acting in a way that i would associate as being human <laughs> you know like having some kind of emotion like oh shit or that's not good or something like that you know some some sort of empathy they got excited over the fact that these people were hurting each other right like because because it, it was going to be good tv so, so I mean, basically, this whole thing just comes down to like uh, the human race is fucked, yeah, right? Like we're a little bit. we're pretty fucked up, and but but yeah. So I, you know, it's just now. Granted, the people not paying attention to the screen, you could probably say like, well, they probably think the show's bullshit anyway because yeah. they're talking about some possessed girl who's gonna die from her phone. But, but I feel like <laughs> that ties into how our society deals with people's traumas is that they don't always acknowledge want to acknowledge that they're actually real. They'd rather just pass them off and not care. Yeah, it's true. Um, For me, the TV scene kind of threw into like the, our giant plot twist at the end, right? Because we're led to believe throughout the entire movie that the ghost is the mom, and then we find out at the end that it's actually Mimiko. And mm. I just want to say, what the fuck? Which ghost is actually killing people? Do you know? It's Mimiko, obviously. No, but, like, I think the mom's the one who twists the head off in the thing, right? Well, so... I'm so confused by this ending. I need help. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I mean, look, well, okay, you know, to, to be fair to you, I don't know that there is a solid explanation. I mean, I think... The way that I think the movie presents it, I think it's supposed to be Mimiko. Yeah. For sure. Like, you know, because the, the movie, it, it it responds to the twist in such a way... To say that, you know, it must have been Mimiko the whole time. Mm -hmm. But I think you could certainly make the argument of it's both ghosts. You know, maybe Mimiko's just been waiting for her chance to possess Yumi. But, well, the mother's been killing. But <laughs> but I, I, I do think that it is just Mimiko. And the reason I say it is because all the bodies are getting the candy in their mouth the way Mimiko would give her sister. Well, see, that's what I thought is that it has to be all Mimiko. But then there's that whole thing with it where they're like, well, the mom wanted to be found. She led us here. She wanted to be found. Yeah, because she wanted people to know her story and her trauma. They I, like basically. Let's put it this way. So, so Japanese ghost stories they they always deal with, you know, with ghosts that come from trauma and guilt and mm -hmm. rage. You know, those are those are the three that it kind of revolves around a lot. And I think that in in her case, you know, it's it's this fact that she let her child die, and then the the interpretation that I've always had from it is that Mimiko killed her mother. Oh, yeah. You know, that, that's kind of what I've, I've always gotten, is Mimiko killed her, her mother and her body's been here forever undiscovered, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I've always sort of assumed that this was her mother looking for acceptance and understanding over what she did to Mimiko and, and leaving her to die, right? So, so her spirit's still kind of like haunted and, and guilt-ridden and, you know, floating around our universe. <laughs> And and I think that what that ending is there, you know, that's that's Yumi kind of taking on the uh, kind of like taking on the uh, the shoes of Mimiko for a moment, maybe. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, sort of like for her mother being Mimiko for a second to apologize and to, you know, assure her it's not her fault, basically. Yeah. Like like it's it, and it, it doesn't. On the surface, it doesn't read that way, and I get that, but... <laughs> I feel like, for me, that's the most fucked up thing about this movie, is the fact that Yumi has been... She's had a shit life. 
she's been through abuse and she's finally gotten out and she's living her own life and she's doing her best to heal and then she's just dragged back fucking in where she has to like placate I mean, in this case, it's a murdery ghost mm. so that she doesn't get murdered by a goo zombie ghost, which is the fucking best goo zombie ghost I've ever seen. Like, that mom is just creepy. I hate every time her skin falls off. Oh, it's pretty great. I, I especially, uh, before the ghost pops up, I especially love uh, Hiroshi in that moment just screaming, shit, yeah. shit, because they can't do anything with the phone. And I'm just like, man, that would that would totally be me in that situation. I am yep. like, this. Because what do you do? You got like 30 seconds till a ghost is about to murder you. It's like, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) But no, yeah, it's, you know, it is fucked up. I mean, that's the point is like, it's not a happy moment. You know, it's like the music's soft and and both are crying, you know, Mm -hmm. but it's not happy. They're basically just, again, it's shared trauma, you know, and and it's person and ghost (laughs) sharing, (laughs) sharing their, their emotional trauma in a moment, you know, where it's like. Uh, you know the the mother's probably viewing Yumi as 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 Mimiko, and and Yumi's probably viewing the mother as her own mother, right? Like, oh, it's, she's like, definitely because the yeah. faces are swapping. Yeah, the two of them are taking on those personas for each other, right? In that mm-hmm. moment, and so you know, so it's like a way of like finding peace despite the fact that's pretty fucked up. Because you're right, she's placating a, a an attention starved ghost, you know, yep. <laughs> uh, by using her own traumatic past. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, but I, but that's why I think that again, this whole thing ties in really well with, uh, with the cell phone and te- technological era. Is that, you know, an, a concept going with the abuse in the film is that, is that you know those who are abusing are mostly seeking attention. Is kind of what the film is sort of pointing at, right? Mm-hmm. I, I forget, I forget what the syndrome is that they call it, the Manchowson proxy or something i don't know but <laughs> yeah um manhausen uh syndrome by proxy yeah something like that but um you know which is a concept of like yeah you abuse to keep someone close to you like you you are or, or it's described as making a making a healthy child sick so that you have to take care of them right yep. you know and so that ties really well into like the technology the technology age because the technology age is all about attention right <laughs> like 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 social media cell phones you know t- texting like it's all about it's all it's all about attention. Like you know, how how many of you actually post on Twitter, uh, thinking? Let me let me think how to phrase this. Like, I I wonder how many people post on social media with the thought of I'm gonna help somebody else today <laughs> instead of just wanting some interaction with your post, right? Like, yeah. It's I, that doesn't mean that we don't do that these posts that help people, right? But it's it's mostly about attention. Yeah. Let's be honest about what it is here, and. You know, and yeah, so you have these ghosts that are that are seeking attention by abusing people in their lives and keeping them with them. And I just it's an interesting thing because it's yeah, with with both of our ghosts, it's the mom who feels the need that her story has to be heard at the expense of other people. Um, And then Mimiko, who's just like, fuck it, I'm going to keep killing people for attention. Here's a candy. I hope you feel better now that you're dead. Yeah. Well, again, I, I think Mimiko sees someone in Yumi who she can take advantage of, and that's why she's attracted to her from the beginning. You know, like she sees her as maybe her little sister in a sense. Oh yeah. Of like, I get to. I can like, abuse that one. Yeah, I mean that—that's the really shitty, dark truth of the ending. There is that, you know, she has possessed Yumi, and, and Yumi is clearly on a path to be abusing Hiroshi, right? Mm-hmm. But. I mean, honestly, Mimiko is inside Yumi abusing her as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing worse than having your fucking soul invaded, right? Yep. So, <laughs> um, but all right, so we got to start wrapping up, unfortunately. Uh, there, there's so much I could talk about this with this movie, but we got to move on. Uh, so who is your killer idiot of One Miss Call? Yeah, mine is Natsumi for actually thinking that the film director can help her with the curse. You don't trust people in film. That's he, just a dumb, dumb mistake. He was very insistent. Yep. There was nothing. <laughs> as, as film people typically are. <laughs> there was nothing sincere about anything he did. There is nothing sincere about anything reality TV show people do. Nope. Um, but, yeah, I mean, my mine goes to the flip side of that, which is the TV show producer, because... To me, I'm just like, that's a pretty fucking big liability to have, you know, if you <laughs> if you end up live streaming a girl's murder by a ghost. Like, granted, you know, I mean, sure, you're going to be famous and your mm. show's going to make a lot of money, probably. 
Um, but you're also probably going to get fucking sued at some point, too, because... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, your career's over. You know, unless unless you... Unless unless uh, Natsumi signed a contract saying, I will not sue you in event of a ghost twist my head off on your program. <laughs> <laughs> but what about your killer death of one missed call? Look, Natsumi wins all the awards because her head got fucking twisted off. Her death is the most brutal of this entire movie. Yeah. And so, yeah, I have to give it to her. Yeah, I mean, look, Natsumi, when you say brutal, it's, it's brutal on a, a variety of levels, actually, Natsumi's <laughs> death, because... <laughs> Because not only does Natsumi get at the worst, I mean, look, you know, fa- falling in front of a speeding train, that obviously is going to hurt for a second, right? You know, yeah. falling down an elevator shaft, that sucks. But, yeah, Natsumi literally has her body twisted around mm-hmm. and all of her bones broken and then her head's twisted off, right? But but to me, the, the thing that's most brutal about it isn't the death itself, but that Natsumi's really the only one in the movie Unless you count Yumi, who actually suffers through 48 hours of knowing she's going to die. Yes. <laughs> you know, and I think that's the worst part is, like, she is the only one of them who sees her death coming from the beginning. Again, it's the whole death is an in- inevitability part, except our earlier characters ignore it, whereas Natsumi is like, I'm fucked. <laughs> oh, Natsumi is given pictures. That's the fucked up thing for me with Natsumi. Everybody else gets a voicemail call, but Natsumi yeah. that goes just like, Fuck you. You're going to look at your death. Right. And then the producer like shoves it in her face like, look, yep. look at your future. <laughs> so, yeah, no, she wins for me, too. Uh, but what about your killer death or but what about your killer MVP of a Miss Call? Look, for me, that's that's the plot twist of it actually being Mimiko. Um, I thought that they did a really good job in this film, and I still do, of really setting it up to be the mom and be the mom. And I thought that they did such a great job of sprinkling breadcrumbs that you could pick up that it's Mimiko, but you don't until they decide to, like, tell you. And I think it's difficult to pull off a plot twist that doesn't just feel like a writer being like, oh, you thought you knew what was happening? Fuck you. I'm going something completely left field. Didn't know we were giving out awards to plot twists on the show Look, now. it's supposed <laughs> to be an MVP for what I liked most about the movie, right? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> so you, so the plot twist. The plot yep. twist takes the MVP award home. Where yeah. do you think the plot twist is going to put the MVP award in its apartment? Like, I, have given, you, I have given the MVP to a lot of weird things. Where do you think, where do you think the plot twist... Like, what do you think the plot twist mantle looks like <laughs> where does it where, anyway all right look so so my mine's gonna go to i think to a, a crew member who i don't really nominate too often which is gonna be the editor yasushi shimamura i think is how you say his name but yeah i'm giving the mvp award to that because i think that the editing in this film is actually really really good yes <laughs> uh, i mean it's it's a well-made movie all around i i think that you know the the cinematography by Hideo Yamamoto is really great. You know, Takashi Miike, like I said, brings a kind of A-level quality to a B-level movie, right? But um, but I really love the editing because the editing, you know, it gives it just it, it gives a really great atmosphere to the movie. You know, you mentioned how like in the beginning when when uh when Yumi, you know, gets the sudden flashback PTSD thing, right? Uh the film's really great about inserting those things all throughout and kind of like you know setting the audience off and kind of throwing us off the track for a second and Mm -hmm. you know and it's just it's just really really well paced for for a film that's doing those kind of things it's like uh it's like the editor knows exactly when to throw those things at us and when to let the moment just kind of play out and be grim and you know all the scares are set up really well because of the editing so so I just, I don't know. I, I think that the editing in this film really creates like a really solid atmosphere. So. Yeah, absolutely. They're having to deal with so many different like big storylines and it's all just blended so perfectly. Yeah. Uh, all right. So that's going to do it for us on One Miss Call. So I'm going to be moving on to our Patreon stuff now. Where we're going to talk about uh, whether or not we think that you can or cannot just ignore the phone call and the voicemail <laughs> and somehow be all right in this movie. Uh, as well as talking about the the kind of random phrase in the end with uh, with not uh, with Hiroshi's sister ghost <laughs> coming up and saying, 
there's a separate sky for all of us. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're going to talk about what that's all about. Um, so if you'd like to hear that, just go to patreon.com slash killerhorrorcritic. For just a dollar a month, you get access to all of our additional bonus content. We also have like bonus episodes, voting on our themes and episodes of the month, stuff like that. So uh, again, if again if you're interested in that, just go to killer or just go to patreon.com slash killerhorrorcritic. I uh, also want to give a shout out to our killer members on Patreon, Ben Scouten, Michael Campbell, Martin Anchetta, Seth Martin, Kelsey Lynn, and John Reed Adams. Just thank you so much uh, for everything that you do for us and for supporting us and keeping us going. Uh, next week is going to be on the uh, original J-horror film Dark Water, not the American remake. I got to keep <laughs> emphasizing that. <laughs> uh, but it's going to be on the original Dark Water, uh, which I'm very excited to talk about. It's a, very, it's a great movie. I, admittedly, though, it's the one I'm least familiar with what we're talking about yeah. this month, but so I'm excited to get back into it. But uh, anyway, yeah, so that's for, uh, that's it for us on one miss call. So I'm Matt and I'm Chris and have a great night. Horror fans. Bye. I hope you've enjoyed tonight's episode of killer horror critic. If you'd like to scream with us some more, please subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Killer From Space, as well as Instagram at Killer underscore Horror underscore Critic. New episodes release every Friday, so keep your eyeballs peeled, just the way I like them. Have a good night, horror fans. <laughs> <laughs>